Welcome to Frictionless Marketing, an exploration of how modern marketers are building their brands, reaching their audiences, and thriving in this post-advertising world. Today, we're thrilled to speak with Jeff Curtis, the former Executive Vice President of Corporate Affairs and Chief Communications Officer at Horizon Therapeutics. Before his impactful tenure at Horizon, Jeff was a senior vice president at Edelman Public Relations, leading media strategy and execution for a multitude of pharmaceutical, biotech, and medical device clients. His journey in the healthcare communications landscape spans over two decades with notable roles at Real Chemistry, GCI Group, and the pharmaceutical products division at AbbVie. In today's episode, Jeff details his extensive career journey from his early days in public relations and advertising to his pivotal former role at Horizon Therapeutics, a biopharmaceutical company dedicated to developing transformative medicines for individuals grappling with rare and rheumatic diseases. Jeff also illuminates the dynamic interactions between patient-centric approaches, corporate stewardship, and the challenges associated with the swiftly evolving healthcare landscape. Moreover, he shares his personal growth narrative, reflecting on how a three-day off-site event altered his outlook on feedback, propelling him towards seeking coaching to enhance his leadership acumen. Without further ado, please welcome Jeff Curtis, former Executive Vice President of Corporate Affairs and Chief Communications Officer at Horizon Therapeutics. Hi, Jeff. Welcome. It's nice to be talking with you again. Likewise, Paul. Nice to be talking to you, too. So I thought we would um, start out by just jumping right in to this idea of communications having a seat at the table, which I feel like for our entire careers has been a theme that has come up again and again and again. And I've heard you talk about it as um, maybe like it's in the past tense now, meaning we no longer need to have the conversation. We have the seat at the table. Um, So can you elaborate on that maybe a little bit and then... Also, let's talk about what do we do with that seat? Well, I, I don't know that, Paula, that I would say it's in the past tense, because I think now we're seeing even some reverse, even back to communications, maybe even being a little bit de-emphasized. If you look at some of reporting structure changes at some companies, some companies changing even the title of the role um, from CCO or head of corporate affairs to something else. And so... I don't know if the is if the seed is firmly planted. What I will say is that I think it's environment dependent. So in, in our example of Horizon, I've known our CEO for 22 years now. We worked together at Abbott back in the day. Every agency that I was at, he hired my the agency to do his work. And so I've been working with him for a long time. The value foundation is definitely there. And so he appreciates communications. He appreciates all functions that go into corporate affairs, CSR, government affairs, patient advocacy, you name it. So I think part of it, what I mean by environment dependent is that there has to be some sort of value foundation there where either the CEO, EC, other execs really understand the value of the function. But where I think the seat started to get a little bit more solidified COVID, I I mean, with the emphasis on internal communications and what we needed to do for the company, what what employees needed to hear, how frequently they needed to hear things, I think that started to solidify a little bit more. But I do still think it's a little bit of an uphill battle in in really firming that seat and really appreciating that value for for some C-suites. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. You've drawn a, a really smart distinction that um, I think I've observed elsewhere as well, which is the distinction between a CEO personally understanding the value of communications for him or herself personally right. versus understanding in a broader sense the value of communications as an organizational function. Right. And if you have that one-on-one value foundation, as you put it, it's, of course, much easier for them to to make that leap from communication is something that's valuable for me to some communication is something that's valuable for the company. Well, yeah, and you're exactly right. It's making that tie. So it, it's making the tie from it's valuable for me, but also now I'm starting to see the value uh, as the a company function overall. Because frankly, if that value foundation wasn't there, Paul, I don't know that the communications corporate affairs function at Horizon would be as big as it is. I mean, we went from one to 53 people in eight and a half years. And you so have 53 people in the communications function in corporate affairs. So communications is 25 yeah. full corporate affairs is 53 with all of the other function I mentioned. But the point being is that if there was no belief in the value of those functions collectively in communications, that build wouldn't have been able to, to, to happen. And I think early on in how we started to reshape even internal, external narrative, internal, external culture, seeing kind of the value put back of that, seeing the equity build in the brand and the enterprise brand itself, that started to, the, the value started to collect even more, not only for the CEO, but among the exec level as well. So can we talk a little bit about the function itself, the team, the department? You know, when you joined Horizon, it was a much smaller company overall than it is today. Right. Did you have a vision for the scale and breadth and um, you know various areas of specialization in the department um, where you mapped it out and you said, this is going to be 30, 40, 50 people, or is it at each step, you know, you're responding to the needs of the business and adjusting accordingly? Uh, the latter, responding to the needs of the business, because I, I didn't have a vision. And frankly, for <laughs> all people at startup companies out there, that's okay, because I think it's okay to adjust to the needs of the business and frankly, grow with the company. When I came, I think there were about 300 employees. Now we're north of 2000. And at each step, and I, I just had this conversation yesterday, it was survival in the beginning, survival mm -hmm. to just get the work done. And then as the company started to grow, that's when we started to plug in product communications, a little bit more on the patient advocacy side, a little bit more on the government affairs side, particularly with drug pricing out there and, and all of that swirl for 2016 to 2018, call it. And then the, the corporate functions a little bit more. Then R&D uh, communications as we started to build our pipeline. And then finally, the last piece of the puzzle was really internal communications. And what I will say about that is that obviously such an emphasis on internal communications now, and it's not a regret, but I probably, as we were building, would have put a little bit more emphasis on that earlier on. It was just there was more need on the commercial side immediately to, to uh, level up product communications and advocacy versus internal communications. But no plan, no roadmap, again, survival, and then kind of checking things off as, as the business started to grow. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the commercial side a little bit, because um, Horizon has done some extraordinary work in the product marketing space. Um, one example being toxic portraits for um, gout, a 40-foot mural in Seattle to debunk myths and stigmas. Um, 
you know, others being, um, I, I, you know, you've, you've heard me profess my, um, my love for your IDAR um, program. Um, you know, Horizon is, is getting nods at CAN for CAN Lions and, and other industry awards for these sort of product marketing um, efforts and brand marketing efforts. What is the role of communications in some of that work? Well, first of all, it's just really cool stuff. I mean, <laughs> and, and it like, really is because I mean, the murals, when you see the murals, amazing when, when the toxic portrait were actually it's a it's a touring exhibit. So it will be in our offices here in uh, outside of Chicago uh, in, a, I think, next week, actually. So I'm excited to see that live and in person. Um, I think that's that's part of the amazing collaboration that happens here, while it may be commercial marketing driven communications does play such an important role, not only in making everything come to life, but also the wraparound in that and, 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 and seeing that really come to fruition in the awareness piece of it. I mean, you take the mural, for example, and just gout overall, it's a century, <laughs> centuries old disease that not a lot of people talk about, not a lot of people understand. And so you have to find new ways and creative ways just to keep the conversation going so that it's more about the medicine so people understand exactly what's happening inside of their bodies. And that's exactly what we did with the mural. I mean, 25% of uric acid is unseen or is seen and the rest of it is unseen in the body. And so that's really the basis behind a mural like that. There are these um, dual energy CT scans or DEX scans that the mural is based on. And so that's what a lot of physicians use to determine where uric acid is, is in within the body and what better way to at least spark conversation among not only general consumers, but gout sufferers to understand what's going on inside their body. And so, again, we marketing takes the lead with something like that, but there's a significant amount of wraparound activity from media, from advocacy, from work with physicians, from work with patients that that go in to make it what it is. And I, I know you didn't ask about metrics, but what we're seeing just from a response standpoint with some of these things, particularly the murals, is increase in website visits, transition from those disease website to from the disease website to brand website some actions, tier one actions being taken on, on physician finders. So it's really working. And those creative ways are really, really working and making an impact, which is exciting to see, because I, I think one thing that I take pride in is that we're always willing at Horizon to take risks and not really afraid to fail. We're willing to try things and just understand that we have to make an impact, particularly with a disease like gout, in order to keep that conversation going. And that's the fun piece of it. And this should be fun in doing that. Well, and you, you really just led into what I was just about to ask, which is, you know, gout, it, it is a, it's, a, it's a very unique disease. And, and you can actually Google and find, you know, colorful illustrations from probably 100 plus years ago, uh, right. you know, people, you know, put out... Um, sort of depicting gout as sort of like this little like gnome like, you know, creature on your toes, you know? And so I guess my question is how much is it that that therapeutic area really lends itself to this kind of creativity and this visual storytelling um, versus it being, you know what, Horizon has a culture that really brings this kind of work forward. I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, again, back to what is happening inside the body and what people don't realize about gout. And frankly, I worked on a gout medicine now 15 years ago. 
I didn't know any of this was happening within the body. And we were just trying 15 years ago to get people to media to write about gout, advocacy partners to pay attention to gout, um, because I think it became somewhat of a forgotten disease. But it's so serious that you're right. I think it does lend itself to some of this creativity. You mentioned toxic portraits. And again, that's another example of what uric acid can do to your body. We had one patient tell us if it can do that to copper, a copper plate, imagine what it's doing to my body. And that is right there. Yes, it lends itself to creativity, but it also requires really a, a forward-thinking marketing team, a forward-thinking culture, as you mentioned, to try to bring these ideas to light in a way that is has, has never been done before. Well, and you mentioned patients there, um, and a lot of the metrics you mentioned were patient-centric, right? Moving from the disease site to the brand site, taking those tier one actions to actually go find a doctor. Um, so they're very patient-centric metrics. And obviously, we're big believers that healthcare at large is being consumerized and that in pretty much every therapeutic area, you really need to be um, putting a, a greater emphasis on patient communications and marketing than has done been done historically. Um, what's your thought on that? And is that something that you talk about internally at Horizon or has it just been sort of a natural evolution? Um, probably more of a natural evolution, Paul, just because we're in the rare disease space and the rare disease space is so unique where we really do have to listen and learn to what patients are saying, what advocates are saying in order to adjust and in order to make things that are going to impact the patient overall and the community overall. So it's really something that we've had to focus on. We knew we had to focus on early on because it's it's such a listening space and a lot of what we have been doing even on the ultra rare disease side is informed by patient need patient demand patient journey you name it whatever that may be it's it's us listening and then translating that into something that is going to make an impact and so we've been very entrepreneurial in that way and again something that's really been baked into the culture since we since we've since horizon started yeah, and the, I mean, you have the you have the the examples, you know, to prove that. Um, one of the things when when we hear that pharma and biotech companies are being patient centric, it feels like it almost always inevitably leads to telling real patient stories, you know. And it's like, okay, a certain point that just becomes wallpaper where everybody's yeah. heard enough real patient stories that it's a, elicits an eye roll. Um, you know, so that's that's obviously where we introduced the idea of talking about story making instead of storytelling or in addition to storytelling. Um, where you know, what are your thoughts on story making as an overall approach to to generating interest and engagement? It's funny when you asked when when um I thought about this and I look back and you probably remember this article, Paul, from Ad Age. It's probably 10 years ago now. I think David Berkowitz when he was talking about differences between apple and coca-cola and okay. i think it was i just bought the apple iphone and i don't know apple's story but i asked my and this was this is him saying this i asked my wife who, who was a big diet coke drinker what's coke's story and then she went into this whole thing about how she used to drink coke with friends at summer camp and they used to pull tabs off and all of that and so that was i think at 10 years ago he said that storytelling is dead and story making is the new thing. And I don't know that story making is the new thing because I don't know that we've gotten there from 10 years ago. But it, it resonated with me because I think it's things like 
really bringing experiences to life that are meaningful. And one thing that I may challenge, it may be less frankly about company brand and more about disease brand, because what's happening with toxic portraits, what's happening with the mural is actually the disease itself kind of becoming the brand and the people telling us about their experiences with that disease. Similarly, our Rare Is program that we launched in 2016 just started as an Instagram campaign. And all we wanted people to do, nothing about Horizon, all we wanted people to do was tell them what their Rare Is was. Was it challenging? Was it a motivational? Was it inspiring? As a leaping off point for them to tell their own story as it related to Rare Disease. And then we came in in the back end with some programming and obviously started telling stories with them a little bit more, but they were making the story there. They were telling us what exactly it was like to have a rare disease. And that helped us from a leaping off point to, to go and do different programming or think about our programming a little bit differently. Yep. No, that's a great example. And it's, of course, rare is you were you were inviting people from the entirety of the rare disease community, even if they weren't, you know, specifically diseases that Horizon was working in. Um, I think that was a big real quickly, Paul, I think that was a big part for us, too, because we definitely when we set out to do that, we wanted it to be disease agnostic and medicine agnostic because we wanted to really put our stake in the ground of being a rare disease company that was focused on the community overall because they needed that that voice and they needed some outlet to even educate others within their own disease communities or the rare disease community overall about what was happening with them and i think it, it just it started to grow after that so didn't mean to interrupt but i just wanted to yeah yeah no it's a great it's a great point and you know one of the things that if we look at the way that traditional sort of pharma marketing comms has been done there's almost always a patient journey in there somewhere and the patient journey is almost always mapped as what we would call a monolith, right? As if there's yeah. one journey that describes all patients. Um, and of course, with every passing year that becomes more and more ludicrous as the country becomes more diverse, the experiences become more diverse, you know, et cetera. But when you think about rare and you think about how different it is in so many different of these um, orphan diseases, rare diseases, Etc. And then you think about the fact that you're trying to communicate with all rare disease communities. I mean, how do you go about finding the the kind of kernels, you know, that are that are going to be the common threads or or themes to communicate on? Yeah, I think one of our mantras is if you've met one patient, you met one you've met one patient, and yep. that's that's how it is, and that's how it is in rare. And so we we have to work very hard and we know that there may be some aspects of the journey that are going to be similar but there are going to be a lot that that aren't and we really have to try our best to understand each individual particularly in the ultra rare because you're talking about very small patient populations and it's not that we can have interaction with all of the patients but as many as we can to at least create an understanding of the differences in journey and i think that's where some of the listening and learning that i talked about earlier whether it be through something like a patient council that we have, whether it be through just even understanding how diseases progress from a from a childhood diagnosis to now you're in your 30s and how that disease has progressed differently, we have to be aware of all of that, not only from a comms advocacy standpoint, but also from a marketing standpoint, that knowing mm -hmm. that it's not going to be any blanket that, that is going to reach all of the patients 
in a particular community or even in the rare disease community. So that's really, I mean, I hate to keep hammering on the listening and learning, but we do so much of that. We do so much of that. And it's very acute in the way that we do it. And we just had a patient counsel in here for one of our diseases last weekend. And again, we're always learning more and more. And that's for a medicine that's been on the market for a while. But we know that the journeys are going to be different. We know that the journeys are going to evolve. And if we stop listening, we're, we're, it's going to pass us by. And so we, we have to continue to do that. So it's, it's, that's the, 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 the real work piece of it, Paul, and also the service piece of it too, because I think people start to realize that being patient centric is so much more than I think, as you said, as just putting out a story or putting out an ad, that deeper understanding of exactly what's happening, what they're going through and being able to tailor then your programming to those experiences is is huge and just just adds so much more uh, high touch to to what we're doing. Yep. No, that's that's great. And I, I appreciate you going into a lot of depth there. Um, speaking of going into some depth here. So a couple of years ago. You wrote an article titled How a Three-Day Offsite Changed My Life. Um, first of all, for people who are listening, maybe if you could uh, describe what that was a little bit. Tell them, you know, what the, what what was life-changing. Um, and, you know, and then maybe some of the learnings now, a couple of years later, um, you know, of how you've continued in this this journey um, since that offsite. Yeah, so I've never been, I was never really a proponent back then of coaching and people telling me what was wrong with me or where I could improve. <laughs> so that's part of the, part of the life-changing piece of it was feedback is a gift, Jeff. Feedback is a gift. I said feedback is a gift, Jeff. <laughs> feedback is a gift. Yeah. I, and, and during that time I learned that. And, but I, again, it's, it's hard. I think we all grew up in different ways and grew up through the industry in different ways. And you never like to hear your deficiencies. Um, throughout, but I think that it was a big piece of it and just understanding exactly that, Paul, that, that feedback is a gift and really putting the mirror on yourself to understand how you are being, how you're presenting yourself, how you are interacting with others. And, and that's why it was life-changing because I never really put a lot of focus on that. And so since then, been more open to coaching, more opening to, to therapy, for <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you, to do exactly that, to continue to put the mirror on myself so that I can be a better leader, so that I can be a better manager, so they can be a better mentor, coach, all of the above. And I think that's us as leaders um, owe that to ourselves to do exactly that, to turn that mirror on ourselves and just understand who we are so that we can be better for others. And then our role after that is to really coach those who we manage, coach those who are on our team to do exactly that too, so that they really understand just who they are and how they interact and little things like how they're presenting themselves in a meeting um, that are important. So you don't turn people off in certain situations, but then understanding what it means to go back and reflect on things like that. Um, and and then how to use those reflections to improve. And, and I would say one of the key takeaways from your article was about really about delegation, right? I think you said that you had come from the camp of you want something done right, you got to do it yourself, right? And and evolved into um, a leader with fifty three people on his team, and you obviously are, are delegating, you know, in that um, in that kind of a role. 
Um, that transition from individual rock star, I, you know, I got here by doing it myself uh, into a leader of not just people, but in, you know, a team that size, I would imagine you've got many tiers, right? You've, you've, yep. You're a leader of leaders. Um, that's a really hard transition to make. And it's something that a lot of people get stuck on in their careers. And I'm just curious if you have any advice for people who maybe are at that moment where they're trying to make that transition themselves. How do you, what would you, you know, what advice would you give them on how to break through? I, I, I think you have to seek out if you know that that's an obstacle and if you know you're getting stuck there. I mean, for me, it was awful. And I remember exactly when I stopped feeling guilty. And it was probably in 2016 or 2017 as my team was growing. I was on vacation getting a flurry of media inquiries about something. And I called one of my direct reports and I said, I'm really sorry about this, but can you handle this? And then I had a conversation with that person after I got back from vacation. He said, why, are you, why were you sorry about me handling? That's what, that's what I'm here for. We're here, we're here to back each other up. <laughs> And, but again, it was, I felt so guilty. And right then I said, I, I need to, I need to fix this even more. I thought I had it fixed. I need to fix this even more because think about this, Paul, I, I'm an N of one. When I started here in 2015, everything was really on my shoulders and still I started building the team. So that piece of it really wasn't helping that I needed to, to, to delegate. And anytime that I did, it was always that I'm guilty and man, I should be handling that myself and I can't handle that myself right now. What is it? I, I feel bad giving it to somebody else. And so I actually had to, as I just said, seek that piece out and know that I needed to improve that more. And so it was a work psychologist. It was a coach. It was ensuring that I was understanding how I was feeling if I was doing something like that. So again, back to the, the first thing I said, if you know that you're getting stuck there, seek assistance, whether it be a coach, whether it be some other development, whether it be through a mentor. I mean, the thing is that I wasn't vocal about this and I had to start being vocal about it, how it was impacting the way I was working. So mentorship is another topic that you've spoken about a lot um, in both directions, you know, having benefited from having mentors, um, and then also mentoring the next generation. Maybe let's just hear a little bit about your thoughts on mentorship, how to go about finding the right mentor relationship. Um, and, you know, I guess if you're going to put, you know, give it, give any further advice to people here, you know, one of the things that they often ask is, how do I make the most out of mentorship? As opposed to just saying, I have a relationship with a senior person, how do I make it productive? I think part of the productivity is bringing them along on your journey. I think that's where a lot of disconnect happens because it, you're exactly right with what you just said. People say, I have a mentor. I have a relationship with this person. I talk to this person once a month. Great. Okay. You, you've checked that box. What I found has been most effective is that people who vote on both sides, because what I will say is that I learn as much from people who I mentor than I'm, that I'm sure they learn from me too. And that's what makes the relationship so amazing is that they're bringing me along on their journey every step of the way and not, not in questioning things, asking for advice. But I feel that I'm a part of, if they have a big decision to make, I feel that I'm a part of that decision. And so why I, the, the, the piece about finding a mentor, I'm always a, being a big proponent of it naturally happening. And 
it has to happen naturally in order for what I just said to happen, to feel that you're committed and invested in the journey. If you're assigned, I, again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it because I would promote mentorship, even if it is assigned over not having one. But when it's assigned, it just feels like it's a task and somebody's saying, go do this. You have to do this. And there has to be that commitment on both sides. And I would say probably 95% of the mentor relationships I have right now have naturally happened. People yeah. have either, whether it's run, bumping into in the halls, whether it's whatever it may be, it, it's naturally happened. And so now I'm committed, they're committed, and they know I'm committed to them. And the last thing I'll say on this, and I, I don't want to go too long, but I facilitated, I was a part of a, we're signatories for CEO for action, um, CEO action for diversity and inclusion. Our CEO signed on to that in 2017. I'm involved in the group. We put a lot of people in the fellowship that they have, but my involvement in the group was I last year ran a six month mentoring circle with wow. a diverse group of people, not in healthcare, not not even really industry adjacent. And they were all mid-level managers. So I facilitated that mentoring circle for six months. And when it was over, we continued. We have a call actually next week, just to, it's kind of a, become a reunion thing, which is really uh, cool. wonderful. But it, it was assigned, but now the natural progression that this has taken, where people are offlining, having conversations with me, asking me about career decisions, it just happened so naturally that it was, it was unbelievable. And I took that concept and brought it internally here at Horizon. So now I'm doing one with uh, female colleagues only. And we've been going for about five months. But again, I asked that I asked them if they wanted to opt in. And those who did, did. And those who didn't, didn't. And, yep. but again, they know that I'm invested in their development, what they want to do. So I, again, a little bit long-winded, Paul, I'm sorry, but it, it's, it's just, I'm passionate about this, but again, it has to, there has to be commitment on both sides and investment on both sides in order to make it work. Yep. I, oh, I think that's absolutely right. And um, Jeff, I realize that we are at our time here. Um, so I just want to say thank you. We've covered a lot of ground. Uh, you've managed to go both uh, broad and deep, though, and uh, we appreciate you sharing your time and insights with us. I appreciate you having me, Paul. All right. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share with your friends and colleagues on LinkedIn? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Lippy Taylor. That's L-I-P-P-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R. And to learn more about us and our agency, visit us at LippyTaylor.com. Thank you for listening to Frictionless Marketing. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out Paul's best-selling book, Friction Fatigue, What the Failure of Advertising Means for Future-Focused Brands. In Friction Fatigue, Paul explains to readers why advertising is broken and provides a frictionless marketing framework to help build your brand in an era where advertising is no longer the answer. You'll learn how to protect your business against competitors and lead the pack with fresh marketing strategies that will help you prepare for a future where the consumer rules. Friction Fatigue is now available on Amazon and as a book on tape on audible.com. Thanks again for listening.